Today's read, Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, written by Anthony T. Browder, continuing with Part 1, Chapter 3, The Historical Accomplishments of Kemet, New Perspectives of an African Civilization, the nations of the quote-unquote first world are often held in high esteem for the rest of the world to idolize, and with good reason. Modern technology has created rockets which have taken man to the moon and has launched satellites to explore the furthest regions of the galaxy. The marvelous advances in computer sciences now make it possible to store the contents of libraries onto disks no larger than a long playing record. But, despite these technological advances, modern men cannot recreate the technology that built the Great Pyramid, mummified the kings of Kemet, or built the temple of Ipet Isut, Karnak. The admiration of the accomplishments of Kemet has given rise to an entire field of study named in its honor, Egyptology and the unearthing of her priceless treasures, which has brought wealth and fame to archaeologists and their financial backers. No nation in the history of civilization has had a greater influence on the arts and sciences than Kemet, and it is there where one can still find the only remaining one of the seven wonders of the world. For thousands of years, Various European leaders have held Egypt in high esteem and looked to her as the progenitor of world civilization and as the seat of ancient knowledge. Admiration for the accomplishments of the ancient Egyptians was so strong that it prompted the following remarks from Henry H. Gorringe, Lieutenant Commander of the United States Navy in 1882. Egypt itself is a book of history one of God's great monumental records. It was the birthplace of literature, the cradle of science and art, the garden and garner of the world. In the branches of decorative art and the science of architecture, they were undoubtedly far in advance of us at the present day. The architectural types of all other structures of antiquity sink into insignificance when compared with those of Egypt. The Egyptians were the first to observe the course of the planets, and their observations led them to regulate the year from the course of the sun. They were a wonderful race, combining within themselves all the branches which adorn, beautify, and add to the reputation of a people when directed in the right channel. Since the development of the Black Studies Movement in the 1960s, and the expansion of Negro History Week into Black History Month, February, has come to be regarded as a time for the official recognition of the accomplishments of African people. Over the years, a number of major corporations have helped to promote Black History Month by sponsoring scholarships and creating calendars, posters, and advertisements depicting the many accomplishments of African people. Of the many ads produced for Black History Month, one has garnered, generated, particular interest within the African-American community. This ad depicts four unmistakably black Egyptian figures and a caption which reads, Before there was American history, there was black history. 
one of the reasons for the ad's popularity is its portrayal of Egyptians as black Africans and its association with a legitimate corporate entity, the now defunct Eastern Airlines. This specific advertisement has also been reproduced on t-shirts sold throughout the United States and on papyrus scrolls which are sold in Cairo, Egypt. The cultural exclusivity associated with the marketing of these two products is most interesting. In Egypt, the aforementioned papyrus art is displayed solely to groups of African-American tourists, while in America, the ad ran only during Black History Month and only in black publications. It is as if the only time one can be interested in black history is during the month of February and the only people interested in black history are black people. The history of Kimmich should be important to everyone, not only because it is the history of black people, but because it is the history of a people who have had a profound impact on world civilization. Every culture has had its classical period, a time of high achievement, which provided the social, moral, and intellectual impetus for succeeding generations. For Western culture, its classical period began in ancient Greece. For the ancient Greeks, their classical period began in Africa, in a country called Kemet. Herodotus, the reputed father of history, provided us with a written testimonial of Egypt's relationship to Greece in the 5th century BCE. Early Astronomy and the Creation of the Calendar Practically all of the art, science, architecture, religion, and philosophy of Nile Valley civilization was directly related to man's interpretation of his immediate environment. The sun, stars, moon, plants, and animal life all appeared to have a relationship with one another. And after observation over a period of hundreds of years, it became clear that the movement and position of the sun and the moon had a direct effect on all objects on the planet Earth. After studying the heavens, the astronomers of Kemet developed stellar, lunar, and solar calendars as a means of regulating agricultural, religious, and civic activities. They also predicted eclipses, plotted the movement of numerous stars, described the method for determining the phases of the moon, and identified five planets. They called Mercury, Sebku, Venus, Bennu Asar, Mars, Heru Kuti, Saturn, Heru Kapur, and Jupiter, Heru Apsheta Taiwi. The effectiveness of any calendar is determined by its accurate timing of the cyclical appearance of a specific heavenly body. The moon was easy to identify because of the apparent changes in its shape. The lunar month was determined by the interval between successive full moons which is a period of precisely 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes, and 2.7 seconds. The word month is derived from the word mona, which means moon. This lunar calendar was useful, but it had shortcomings because of its differences with the solar year. 
12 lunar months is approximately 354 days, which is about 11 days shorter than the true solar year, and 13 lunar months is about 383 and a half days, which is 18 and a half days longer than the solar year. The daily apparent motion of the sun provided a more accurate unit of measurement. Eventually, the solar day and the changing seasons of the year gave rise to the development of a calendar based on the solar year. The solar year is defined as the time it takes the planet Earth to make one complete revolution around the sun, which is a period of exactly 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 46 seconds. The astronomers of Kemet were the first to develop a solar calendar which divided the year into 365 days, consisting of 12 months of 30 days each. Five additional days were added to the end of the year, which corresponded to the birth of the gods Necheru, Osiris, Isis, Horus, Set, and Neptis, who were the progenitors of the human race. 12 times 30 plus 5 equals 365 days. The year was subsequently divided into three seasons of four months duration, which were called the inundation, the cultivation, and the harvest. Each 30-day month was divided into three weeks of 10 days, and each day was then divided into 24 hours. The word hour is derived from the name of the god Necher, Horus, Heru, who was associated with the sun. The hour of the day represents the position of the sun, Horus, Heru, relative to the planet Earth at any given time of the day or night. This particular calendarial system was based upon the civil year of Kemet. Otto Nugabar, author of the exact sciences in antiquity, referred to it as the only intelligent calendar that has ever existed in human history. The Kemites realized that their civil calendar was imperfect because it lacked a quarter of a day each year relative to its sidereal orbit, the exact period in which the Earth makes one complete revolution around the Sun. To correct this error, a more precise sidereal calendar was introduced around 4236 BCE. This new calendar alleviated the necessity of adding one day every four years, leap year, by adding a new year every 1,460 years. 4 times 365 equals 1,460. Both the civil year calendar and the astronomical year calendar were used simultaneously and were in synchronization with one another every 1,460 years when the first day of each calendar coincided with the helical rising of the dog star, Sothis, Sirius, which also coincided with the inundation, the annual flooding of the Nile. Successive civilizations found it difficult to maintain these complex timekeeping systems and created their own. The Roman calendar, which was introduced around 738 BCE, was said to have been borrowed from the Greek calendar. It consisted of 10 months and a year of 304 days. The 10 months were named Martius, 
Aptilus, Maeus, Janius, Quintilus, Sextilus, September, October, November, and December. The last six names were derived from the words for the numbers 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. In 452 BCE, the Emperor Numa added the month of January to the beginning of the year and February to the end of the year in an attempt to make the Roman calendar correspond to the solar year. Numa then created a new month called Mercedinus, which had 22 or 23 days, and inserted it between February 23rd and 24th every other year. This manipulation of the calendar caused the Roman year to shift three months ahead of the seasons, thereby causing autumn to appear in July and winter in September. In 46 BCE, at the invitation of Julius Caesar, Cleopatra visited Rome and was accompanied by their son, Caesarion, her brother Ptolemy, XIV, and numerous servants and scientists. Cleopatra's astronomers corroborated with the Roman astronomer Sassigenes and made recommendations for the improvement of the old Roman calendar. A new calendar was then developed, which consisted of 365 and one-fourth one days. The year was divided into 12 months of 30 and 31 days, with the exception of February, which had 29 days and 30 days every four years. The beginning of the new year was also moved from March 1st to January 1st. In honor of the new Julian calendar, the Romans renamed the month of Quintilis after Julius Caesar and called it July, which was also the month of his birth. Upon the death of Caesar in 44 BCE, the month of Sextilis was renamed August after the new emperor Augustus, not to be overshadowed by the memory of the late emperor Augustus removed a day from the month of February and added it to August in order to make his month as long as Julius Caesar's. As a result of these two maniacal manipulations, July and August are the only consecutive months with 31 days each, while the other months alternate between 30 and 31 days. February, the obvious exception has been reduced to 28 days per year with an additional day added every four years. All of these changes created so much confusion that a rhyme was written to remind us of the number of days in each month. 30 days half September, April, June, and November. The Julian calendar remained in use for more than 1,500 years, but because it was actually 11 minutes and 14 seconds longer than the solar year, it eventually led to a shifting of the dates of the seasons, and by the year 1580 ACE, the spring equinox fell on March 11th instead of March 21st. In order to correct this error, a new calendar was introduced in 1582 by the Roman Pope Gregory XIII. This calendar is supposed to be based on the year that Jesus the Christ was born, although the actual date is unknown. Dates before the birth of Jesus are listed as B.C. or before Christ. Dates after that year are listed as A.D. or Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Non-Christian references to dates are written B.C.E. for before Common Era and A.C.E. for after Common Era. The Gregorian calendar 
corrected the difference between the sun and calendar by deleting 10 days from the month of October, which restored the next equinox to its proper date. Pope Gregory further decreed that February would have an extra day only in century years divisible by 400, in years that cannot be divided by 400, such as 1700, 1800, and 1900, the extra day in February is not added. This calendar is based on the tropical year of 365.2425 days and is so accurate that the difference between the calendar and solar years is now only approximately 26 seconds. All of this pales in comparison when one considers that the comedic calendar which was introduced approximately 6,228 years ago, was based upon a year of exactly 365.2422 days. Other calendars currently in use worldwide, the Hebrew calendar, which was said to have begun with the creation 3,760 years and three months before the beginning of the Christian era, this calendar is based on the moon and consists of 12 months that are that are alternately 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 30 and 29 days long an extra 29 day month is added seven times during every 19 year period the year 1992 in the gregorian calendar corresponds to the year 5752 in the hebrew calendar the Islamic calendar begins with Muhammad's flight from Mecca to Medina, which occurred in 622 ACE by the Gregorian calendar. This is a lunar calendar which has 12 months alternately. Alternately. That's how you say it. Alternately. 30 and 29 days in length. The Islamic year has 354 days and divides time into cycles of 30 years long. During each cycle, 19 years have the regular 354 days and 11 years have 355 days each. The Islamic calendar is considered to be as accurate as the, as the Gregorian calendar. The year 1992 in the Gregorian calendar corresponds to the year 1412 in the Islamic calendar. <sighs> Astronomy, Astrology, and Agriculture the study of the heavens and the mapping of the stars is an age-old science which requires centuries of observation and analysis. The early inhabitants of the Nile Valley identified groups of stars which were stretched across the sky and whose rising followed each other by a period of 10 days. These stars were associated with various gods and called deacons. The division of the comedic year into 36 weeks of 10 days each meant that each week was ruled over by a specific deacon or constellation. This is the process by which it was determined thousands of years ago that a circle would consist of 360 degrees, 36 times 10 equals 360. The people of Kemet further divided the heavens into 12 divisions in the southern sky, 12 divisions in the northern sky, and 12 divisions in the central sky. These 36 divisions were then divided among the three seasons, and from that delineation emerged 
the regions for the 12 signs of the zodiac. Each zodiacal sign was associated with a deacon who was referred to as one of the watchers of the hours. They were regarded as messengers of the greater gods of Horus. They were regarded as messengers of the greater gods or of Horus himself. Hence the origin of the word horoscope. The association of each zodiacal sign was purely symbolic and represented the relationship between the appearance of certain stars overhead and specific activity taking place on the earth below. According to John Jackson in his book, Introduction to African Civilization, when the agriculturists of the archaic civilization of Africa were faced with the problem of determining the proper seasons for planting their crops by observing the motions of the stars, they projected the animal symbols of the totemic hunters into the skies to become the signs of the zodiac. The original zodiac was located in the ceiling of an observatory in the temple of Dendera. It was, quote-unquote, discovered by Napoleon's troops in 1799 and dynamited from the ceiling. After a series of owners, it was sold to Louis XVIII for 150,000 francs and is now located in the Louvre Museum. The inner circle of figures which move counterclockwise like the stars stars, shows the astrological signs of the zodiac circling around the North Pole, which is symbolized by the jackal. The outer circle of figures represents the 36 deacons. Each one symbolizes the 10-day weeks of the comedic year. The 12 figures outside of the circle represent the 12 months of the year and their arms the 24 hours of the day. Further clarification of the astrological signs and their relationship to agriculture was presented by Count Volney, who offered us the following for consideration. The Ethiopian of Thebes named the stars of the inundation or Aquarius, those stars under which the Nile began to overflow, stars of the ox or bull, Taurus, those under which they began to plow, stars of the lion, Leo, those under which that animal, driven from the desert by thirst, appeared on the banks of the Nile, stars of the sheaf or of the harvest virgin, Virgo, those of the reaping season, stars of the lamb, Aries, stars of the two kids, Gemini, those under which these precious were brought forth. In the same manner, he named the stars of the crab, those where the sun, having arrived at the tropic, retreated by a slow, a slow retrograde retreated by a slow retrograde motion like the crab or cancer he named the stars of the wild goat or capricorn those where the sun having reached the highest point in its annuary tract imitates the goat who delights to climb to the summit of the rocks he named the stars of the balance or libra those where the days and nights being equal seemed in equilibrium like that instrument and the stars of the scorpion those where certain periodical winds brings vapors burning like the venom of the scorpion it is important to understand the relationship that exists between the astrological signs of the zodiac and agriculture the ability to plant grow harvest and store food is essential to maintaining stability among a people 
who were once nomadic. Agriculture gave rise to the development of culture. Once a people's basic need for food is satisfied, they can then focus attention on other critically important philosophical issues such as, who am I? Where did I come from? And what is my reason for being? It was the attempt to answer these and many other profound questions that led to the development of writing, science, and religion. Thus, agriculture is the path to civilization. Some scholars, including the noted Egyptologist Budge, assert that the Egyptians borrowed their knowledge of the signs of the zodiac from the Greeks, who in turn derived their astronomical knowledge from the Babylonians. Albert Churchward strongly disagreed with Budge and offered the following rebuttal. The Egyptians had worked out all the architecture of the heavens, and their priests carried all of the same with them to all parts of the world. The Babylonians copied and obtained all their knowledge from the Egyptians. We are surprised that Dr. Budge should write that they borrowed from the Greeks. They were old and degenerating in decay before the Greek nation was born. Well, may he say that it is a subject of conjecture at what period the Babylonians first divided the heavens into sections, etc., because they never did. What they knew, they borrowed either direct from the Egyptians or Sumerians. The latter obtained it from Egypt. Astronomy and Religious Architecture Astronomy, the calendar, and astrology all played a major role in the development of myth, ritual, and religion in the Nile Valley. The impact that Nile Valley religion and temple architecture had on world civilization will be discussed in a later chapter, but it is important to establish the relationship between astronomy and religious architecture. Many of the primary gods, Necheru, of the Nile Valley were associated with celestial bodies. A primary component of temple architecture was the precise alignment of these religious structures to either the sun or the moon, the four cardinal points, the summer solstice or winter solstice, the spring equinox or autumn equinox, or star systems, constellations. The purpose for this exact orientation was to align the temple to a heavenly body in such a manner so as to capture the light or spirit of that body inside the Holy of Holies, which was the most sacred shrine in every temple. This was the place where the priest or king could meet the Spirit of God face to face. There are a number of temples in Upper Kemet, Sudan, and Ethiopia, which are oriented to the bright star Alphi Centauri. The great temple of Ipet Isut Karnak is oriented to the setting summer solstice sun and the temples of Edfu and Philae are oriented to sunrise at the autumn equinox. The pyramids of Lower Kemet are oriented on an east and west axis to the sun, and the pyramids of Upper Kemet are oriented on a southeast solar axis. Very little is known as to how the ancient Africans plotted the sun, moon, and stars, but Sheikh Antetiap makes it very clear 
that the method of astronomical observation of these architectural structures represent the existence of a sound astronomical science. Jap further states that the number of monuments that are oriented in relation to the four cardinal points with an error always below one degree to the true north eliminates any notion of chance. The development of symbols and symbolic thought. Man, having remarked in the beings which surrounded him certain qualities distinctive and proper to each species, and having thence derived a name by which to designate them, he found in the same source an ingenious mode of generalizing his ideas and transferring the name already invented to everything which bore any resemblance or analogy. He enriched his language with a perpetual round of metaphors. Count Volney, Ruins of Empires. Symbols and symbolic thought played a vital role in the development of all aspects of Nile Valley civilization. There was no dimension of life that was devoid of it. Architecture, religion, science, medicine, clothing, jewelry, philosophy, writing, and many other facets of everyday living were influenced by varying forms of symbolic expression. It was a language which communicated on several levels simultaneously. The degree to which one understood the abstract and or practical aspects of symbolic thought was determined by the extent of one's education. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The development of agriculture required the services of individuals who were capable of plotting the heavens and identifying the appearance or disappearance of certain stars which foretold the return of the annual floods, the rainy season, and of the precise times to sow the various grains. These early astronomers were invaluable to their community and were exempt from the rigors of manual labor. Their responsibilities were to study the heavens, to catalog and codify their findings, and transmit the information to the appropriate officials. Over a period of many generations, the astronomers-slash-priests became well acquainted with the secrets of the universe. They discovered the movements of the stars and planets, the relationship between their phases and their influence on vegetation, human beings, animals, and many of the various elements and minerals of the planet. As their knowledge grew, new areas of specialized interest evolved, thus allowing man to better understand his relationship with the infinite power that is called God. The universe was viewed as the omnipotent expression of one great supreme being, which manifested itself within all of the functions and principles that govern the universe and maintain balance and harmony. These facets of the one supreme God 
were referred to collectively as Necheru and individually as Necher. Each manifestation of a Necher was associated with a divine aspect of God and was represented by a specific symbol. As time passed, the Necheru became known as the many forces of nature, for example, the god of water, the god of air, the god of the earth, etc. Animals were usually selected to represent the qualities of a specific nature because the nature of an animal was unique to that particular creature and remained constant over the years. The following are examples of animal traits and their association with specific nature. The falcon is a symbol for the sun and light because of its rapid flight and its ability to soar into the highest regions of the air where the light abounds. The Necheru is represented by the falcon and his right eye symbolizes the sun and the sun's ability like that of God to see all things at all times. The eye is also the organ which perceives light and represents the process of spiritual awareness. Similar attributes have been incorporated into Native American names such as Hawkeye and Eagle Eye. The Ibis is a bird that sleeps with its head folded beneath its wing and its body assumes the shape of a heart, which was regarded as the seat of the soul and true intelligence. The footstep of an Ibis was said to be equal to one cubit, which was considered a sacred unit of measurement. The nature, Jehudi, was portrayed with an Ibis head and he represented divine articulation of speech and intelligence. He was the keeper of the sacred cubic and the creator of science, writing, and medicine. He was known to the Greeks as Toth and Hermes. The Romans identified him with Mercury. The scarab beetle symbolizes the resurrection and immortality of God as represented by the sun. The scarab lays its eggs in a bowl of dung, which it rolls across the ground in a direction that follows the path of the sun. The heat of the sun warms the eggs inside the dung bowl, which undergo a metamorphosis through the larva and nymph stages before emerging into the light of day as winged scarabs. The ball of dung symbolizes matter, the eggs, spiritual potential, and the newly born scarab represents spiritual rebirth. The nature kefra symbolizes this, trans- symbolizes this transformative quality and becomes an excellent metaphor for the process of resurrection. The ass is a stubborn, passionate, and often overburdened animal. It symbolizes the recalcitrant personality of humans. This personality, like the ass, bears the weight of our suffering and carries us through life but often refuses to go in the direction we think is best. The ass symbolizes the nature set because, like that animal, he is also of a reddish color. Set represents the rebellious nature of the spirit and that which is often referred to as evil. We see this symbol in the Gospels when Samson defeats his enemies with the jawbone of an ass, and when Jesus the Christ rides into Jerusalem mounted on the ass. The Jackal Dog Feasts on carrion which must be consumed at a specific point of decay in order for it to be of sustenance. This natural instinct of the jackal symbolizes the qualities of 
fine judgment. The jackal is represented by the nature and pool, Anubis, who was responsible for adjusting the balance of the scale that weighed the heart slash soul of the deceased at judgment. The natural homing instincts of the jackal are also reflected in Anpu, who prepares the corpse to serve as a receptacle for the reincarnated spirit before guiding it through the underworld. Aspects of God were also attributed to the nature associated with the Nile River, who was called Hapi. The annual flooding of the Nile was a guarantee from the Creator that water would be available for farming, fishing, drinking, and other enterprises so vitally important to the maintenance of life. Hapi was portrayed as an elderly male with large, flabby female breasts that symbolized one who had nursed or breast-fed an entire nation. Hapi was the original Old Man River, and his name is probably the source of the word happy. One of the most significantly important symbols in the Nile Valley was the sun. The worship of the sun was a very complex affair, which continued to evolve throughout the ages. The people of Kemet not only deified the physical structure of the sun, but also considered its many different aspects, its light, its heat, and its rays. Various Necheru were designated to represent the physical sun, the intellectual sun, the power of the sun, the sun in the heavens, and the sun in its resting place. The representation of the sun as a supreme nature is understandable when you examine the importance of its relationship to the earth. This planet and all life on it exists because of the sun. The sun's light illuminates the sky during the day and overpowers the lights of the stars, Necheru, deacons, which are always present but cannot be seen because of the intensity of the sunlight. After the sun sets, its presence can still be seen reflecting off the surface of the moon and the planets that are millions of miles away. The sun, therefore, makes a fine symbol for the omnipresent power of a nature. The most significant sun nature was Ra, or Re, who represented the creative aspect of God and whose visible expression is the sun. He was the principle responsible for all creation and was referred to in the sacred text as self-created and all-powerful. The term, a ray of light, refers to this nature. Another significant sun nature was Amen or Amon, the personification of the sun after setting, when it was hidden from view in the underworld. Amen was depicted as a, depicted as a man with the head and horns of a ram. In the middle nature, the words of God later referred to by the Greeks as hieroglyphs, sacred carvings, the word ram means concealment, and one of the common names for Amen was the concealed one. In modern language, the word Amen, which is often used at the conclusion of prayers, also means the hidden one. These two concepts are identical, but what has been lost over the ages is the deeper meaning of the symbolism and the power of the word. The awesome force of the sun was recognized as the primary activator for life. When the sun rose on the eastern bank of the Nile, all life began. Birds would sing its praises. Man would begin his work. Flowers would blossom and insects would fly about. Likewise, when the sun set on the west bank of the Nile, 
all activities would cease until the next morning. This drama of death and rebirth was played out daily in the sky, and the east and west banks of the Nile became physical representations of the life and death principles associated with the sun. The sun was born each morning in the east. Therefore, all activities pertaining to life were conducted on the east side of the river, where cities, temples, and palaces were constructed. The sun was said to die each night when it set in the west. So, consequently, the dead were buried on the west bank of the Nile, which is where we find the tombs of the kings, queens, and nobles. Upon closer examination, all activities associated with life and death had a symbolic and spiritual relationship with the forces of nature, which were called the Neturu, Nile Valley Religion. From the beginning of time, Africans have always had a belief in one God, self-created and all-powerful. Upon observation, upon observing the wonders of the universe, man began to see the many manifestations of the one creator reflected in all that existed and identified them as aspects of the one, or nature. This monotheistic viewpoint saw everything as a part of the whole. A nature is not God. It is an integral part of that which is God. Similarly, a transmission is not an automobile, but it is an essential component to the function of that automobile, as is every part of that vehicle. Attempts to portray African religion as polytheistic, anthropomorphic, or idolatrous, or as repugnant as those who seek to condemn it, are as repugnant as those who seek to condemn it. Modern religion has angels, archangels, messengers, and saints who carry out roles similar to those of the Neturu. References to Jesus the Christ as the Lamb is just as anthropomorphic as Amon's association with a ram. Reference to the Spirit of God as a dove is just as anthropomorphic as Heteru, Hathor's association with a cow. John Anthony West provided the following commentary on two fundamental aspects of Kemet and world religion, creation myths, and the role of man. Egyptian religion may be divided into two distinct but complementary and intertwined themes, the creation of the universe and the creation of man and his role in the universal scheme. The Egyptians expressed their religious ideas through myth and symbolism, not through philosophical explanation. In many ways, myth and symbol are superior means for expressing metaphysical concepts, but it is first necessary to be privy to the inner meaning of the symbolic language employed. The keys to Egypt died with their religion. That is why the subject is so prone to controversy. In both the Nile Valley account and the Christian account, God is self-created, creates heaven and earth divides the waters, creates the light and separates it from darkness and creates man. The parallels between these two religious systems are numerous and striking, but because much of the early research on Kemet was conducted by Christians, 
historical information was doctored to suit their particular religious beliefs. John Jackson gives us an example. The late Professor James Henry Breasted, 1865-1935, considered the civilization of Egypt the oldest in the world and dates the first dynasty of that country as beginning about 3400 BC. Sir Flinders Petrie, 1853-1942, an equally eminent Egyptologist, dates the beginning of Dynasty One in the year 4777 BC. There is a discrepancy of nearly 2,000 years. How do we account for this? Breasted studied for a doctorate in Egyptology under Professor Edward Meyer, 1855-1930, at the University of Berlin. Meyer, being a Christian, assumed that the world began about 4004 BC, according to the biblical chronology. Breasted adopted Meyer's chronology and criticized Petrie and other authorities for adopting an earlier date. The building of the Great Pyramid was begun during the Third Dynasty. According to Petrie, Dynasty Three lasted from 4212 to 3998 BC. If these dates are correct, the Great Pyramid was erected before the creation of the world according to Christian chronology. Breasted dates for the Third Dynasty are 2980 to 2900 BC. This fits into the biblical tradition. The people of the Nile Valley were the first human beings to express a profound belief in a doctrine of everlasting life. They preserved the bodies of their dead by a yet undiscovered process of embalming and entombed these bodies in elaborately inscribed funerary monuments. Prayers and litanies played a major role in preparing the soul of the recently departed for its journey through the underworld and guaranteed its safe passage to God in the next world. The so-called Book of the Dead was a compilation of the prayers that were inscribed on the walls of the tombs or written on papyrus scrolls, which were buried with the dead. These sacred pronouncements were discovered by the grave robbers who violated these tombs in search of fame and glory and regarded these writings as the books of the dead. According to Wallace Budge, celebrated translator of the Book of the Dead, these texts were known to have existed in revised editions and to have been used among the Egyptians from about B.C. 4500 to the early centuries of the Christian era. Budge admits that the correct name for the Book of the Dead is derived from the words Pert M. Heru, which has been translated as coming forth by day, a reference to the rebirth or resurrection of the soul of the deceased, a concept that first existed in the Nile Valley. There are a number of significant religious references which have emerged from the book of the coming forth by day. They include the conception of heaven, the soul of man going to heaven, the soul of man sitting on a throne by the side of God, the heavenly blessed eating from the tree of life, God molding man from clay, God breathing the breath of life into man's nostrils,
the concept of creation through the spoken word, moral concepts of good and evil, traditions of hell and hellfire. One of the most celebrated Neturu in all of Kemet was Asar, who is commonly known by his Greek name Osiris. It has been written that at the time of his birth, a voice was heard to proclaim that the Lord of creation was born. The story of Asar is long and quite involved. He is recognized as a great mythical king of Kemet, who brought civilization to his people and established a code of laws and instruction for the worship of God. He ruled Kemet along with his wife Aset, who is better known by her Greek name, Isis. According to legend, Asar was slain by his cunning and evil brother Set, who cut his body into 14 pieces and scattered them throughout Kemet. After a long search, Aset found all of the parts of her husband's body except the phallus, which, as legend has it, was consumed by a catfish when it was discarded into the Nile. Aset recreated the missing member of Asar in the form of a Tekken obelisk, which later became a symbol representing the resurrection of Asar. Aset was without child before the murder of Asar, but by means of certain powerful words given to her by the Netur Jehudi Toth, who represents divine articulation of speech, Aset resurrected her slain husband. Shortly thereafter, Aset conceived a child upon being immaculately impregnated by the spirit of her husband and gave birth to a son, Heru Horus, who avenged the death of his father by slaying his uncle Set. After Heru reached adulthood, he ruled as king on earth, and Asar journeyed to the underworld, where he reigned as king. Some of the titles conferred upon Asar were Lord of Eternity, Ruler of the Dead, and Lord of the Underworld. Images of Asar in his new position of rulership portray him as mummified, bearded king who carries the shepherd's crook and the flail and sits on the throne of judgment which was ornamented with a checkerboard pattern that represented the good and evil who were to come before him. Asar also becomes the representation of the deceased king as well as all deceased individuals. He was commonly referred to as the Good Shepherd and is the personification of the cycles of death and rebirth and of spiritual salvation. Asar's role as judge of the souls of the recently departed was of paramount importance because his decision determined where and how the soul would spend eternity. The heart of the deceased was believed to be the seat of the soul and it was weighed on the scale of the Nechama'at against a feather, which represented the principles of truth and righteousness. This scene of judgment is referred to as the weighing of the soul and each participant plays a critical role. One, the person whose soul is to be judged, stands before Ma'at and declares his innocence. Two, the scale of Ma'at was attended to by the Neturu, Heru, and Anpu, Anubis, who verify its accuracy. On the left side of the balance was a vessel which represented the heart slash soul of the, of the deceased, and on the right balance was an ostrich feather, which represented Ma'at. 
and the principles of truth, justice, righteousness, and reciprocity. This symbolic weighing of the heart against the feather of truth was performed to establish the righteousness of the deceased. If the scale remained balanced, after the recitation of the 42 declarations of innocence, it was an indication that the soul was righteous and deserving of its heavenly reward in the afterlife. The concept of one's heart being as light as a feather is derived from this ancient ritual. The Netra Jehudi, often identified by his Greek name Toth, is the principal associated with science, writing, literature, and divine speech. Jehudi's role was to record the outcome of the weighing in the Book of Life. For all of this activity took place in the presence of, As of Asar, who was seated on the throne of judgment and made the final decision regarding the deceased. The statements uttered by the deceased as he stood before the Necheru were called the Declarations of Innocence or Admonitions of Ma'at. These were the 42 laws by which the person was to have lived his life and the standard by which he would be measured at the time of judgment. They are referred to in Budge's translation of the Book of the Dead as negative confessions and are listed as follows. I have not done iniquity. I have not robbed with violence. I have not stolen. I have done no murder. I have done no harm. I have not defrauded offerings. I have not diminished obligations. I have not plundered the nature. I have not spoken lies. I have not snatched away food. I have not caused pain. I have not committed fornication. I have not caused shedding of tears. I have not dealt deceitfully. I have not transgressed. I have not acted guilefully. I have not laid waste the plowed land. I have not been an eavesdropper. I have not set my lips in motion against any man. I have not been angry and wrathful except for a just cause. I have not defiled the wife of any man. I have not defiled the wife of any man, repeated twice. I have not polluted myself. I have not caused terror. I have not transgressed, repeated twice. I have not burned with rage. I have not stopped my ears against the words of right and truth, Ma'at. I have not worked grief. I have not acted with insolence. I have not stirred up strife. I have not judged hastily. I have not been an eavesdropper repeated twice. I have not multiplied words exceedingly. I have not done neither harm nor ill. I have never cursed the king. I have never fouled the water. I have not spoken scornfully. I have never cursed the nature. I have not stolen. I have not defrauded the offerings of the Necheru. I have not plundered the offerings to the blessed dead. I have not filched the food of an infant. Neither have I sinned against the nature of my native town. I have not slaughtered with evil intent the cattle of the nature. By conservative estimates, the 42 declarations of Ma'at were written approximately 1,500 years before the writing of the Ten Commandments. By comparing the two documents, one will find striking comparisons. When one thinks of the Ten Commandments 
and association is automatically made with Moses, the lawgiver. But we must ask ourselves, who was Moses? And where did he acquire the laws that he gave? We are told that Moses is credited with the declaration and dissemination of monotheism. And we are also told that he was raised and educated in Egypt. Exodus 2 verses 9 through 10 states, And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me. And the child grew. And she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, Because I drew him out of the water. The infant Moses had been placed in an ark among the bulrushes by his mother, where he was found by a handmaiden of the king's daughter. We are informed by Budge that the Ark of Bulrushes was nothing more than a small papyrus boat. Papyrus is a plant which is abhorred, which is abhorred by crocodiles and thus is excellent material for a boat. Papyrus was also a plant which symbolized Lower Kemet. Acts 7.22 informs us that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Peter Tompkins, author of Secrets of the Great Pyramid, references Moses' presence in ancient Kemet. Heliopolis, the On of the Bible, was considered the greatest university of, in the world. It had existed since much earlier times under the domination of the priests, of whom there were said to be 13,000 in the time of Ramesses III, 1225 BC. More than 200 years earlier, Moses was instructed at Heliopolis in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, which included physics, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, medicine, chemistry, geology, meteorology, and music. Moses is said to have been raised in the Pharaoh's household as the grandson of the Pharaoh and to have lived with him in Egypt for 40 years. John Jackson, in his book, Ages of Gold and Silver, suggests that Moses was educated as a young priest and received his theological education at the temple of Heliopolis, where he was a disciple of Akhenaten. Akhenaten was the Pharaoh who broke with the long-standing Kemetic religious tradition of acknowledging the Necheru and focused the nation's attention on a singular personification of God whom he worshipped as Hatun. Hatun. Akhenaten's religious conversion was not accepted by the established priesthood and after his death, some suspect that he may have been murdered, Moses led a group of heretics out of Kemet and reestablished this new religious doctrine in Palestine. Jackson, Benyakanen, and other scholars have maintained that not only, Mos not only was Moses' teachings of one God a direct result of his theological training in Kemet, but the Ten Commandments represent less than one-third of the original document, the 42 Declarations of Ma'at. Akhenaten's influence on the Old Testament text can be seen in a careful analysis of the similarity between Akhenaten's hymn to the Atan and Psalm 104. 
Okay, so this is a comparison between Akhenaten's hymn to the Eton and Psalm 104. Akhenaten's hymn, circa 1353 BCE. The world is in darkness like the dead. Every lion cometh forth from its den. All serpents sting. Darkness reigns. Psalm 104, circa 1000 BCE. Thou makest the darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions roar after their prey. Akhenaten, when thou risest in the horizon, the darkness is banished. Then, in all the world, they do their work. Psalm 104, the sun riseth, man goeth forth unto his work, and to his labor until the evening. Akhenaten, all trees and plants flourish, the birds flutter in their marshes, all sheep dance upon their feet. Psalm 104, the trees of the Lord are full of sap, wherein the birds make their nests, the high hills are a refuge for the wild goats. Akhenaten, the ships sail upstream and downstream alike, the fish in the river leap up before thee, and thy rays are in the midst of the great sea. Psalm 104, so is this great and wide sea, wherein are thing creeping innumerable, both small and great and beasts. There go the ships. Akhenaten, how manifold are, are all thy works. Thou didst great the earth according to thy desire, men, all cattle, all that are upon the earth. Psalm 104, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy creatures. In 1984, at the Nile Valley Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, Dr. Charles Kofer, professor of Old Testament at the Inter Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta, discussed the role of Egypt and Ethiopia in the Old Testament. He stated the following, In the King James and Revised Standard Versions of the Bible, the word Egypt, Mitzrayim in Hebrew, along with cognates, occurs some 740 times in the Old Testament. The word translated Ethiopia and or Cush, Cush in Hebrew, along with cognates and including three instances of duplication in the references, appears 58 times in the King James Version. In this version, the translation Ethiopia is used 39 times, Cush untranslated with cognates 19 times. The numerous references to Egypt led one Old Testament scholar to remark, no other land is mentioned so frequently as Egypt in the Old Testament. To understand Israel, one must look well into Egypt. The story of Asar, Aset, and Heru is the first story in the recorded history of man of a holy royal family, the Trinity, immaculate conception, virgin birth, and resurrection. Evidence of this Trinity is known to have existed in ancient Nubia as late as 3300 BCE, carved on the walls of the Temple of Luxor, circa 1380 BCE, are scenes which depict the following. 1. The Annunciation. The Necha Jehudi is shown announcing to the Virgin Aset the coming birth of their son, Heru. 2. The Immaculate Conception. The Necha Nef, 
who represents the Holy Ghost, and the Nechahed Heru, Hathor, are shown symbolically impregnating Aset by holding Ankhs, symbols of life, to the nostrils of the virgin mother-to-be. 3. The virgin birth. Aset is shown sitting on the birthing stool, and the, new mo- the newborn child is attended by midwives. 4. The adoration. The newborn Heru is portrayed receiving gifts from three kings or magi while being adored by a host of gods and men. Samuel Sharp, author of Egyptian Mystery and Egyptian Christianity, made the following comments upon viewing this scene. In this picture, we have the Annunciation, the Conception, the Birth, and the Adoration as described in the first and second chapters of Luke's Gospel, and as we have historical assurance that the chapters in Matthew's Gospel, which contain the miraculous birth of Christ, are after editions not in the earliest manuscripts, it seems probable that these two poetical chapters in Luke may also be unhistorical and borrowed from the Egyptian accounts of the miraculous births of their kings. Gerald Massey reproduced these images in his book, Ancient Egypt, The Light of the World, Volume 2, which was published in 1907. In this work, Massey cited more than 200 similarities between the lives of Asar and Heru and the life of Jesus the Christ, who was born at least 3,300 years later. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Comparison between the lives of Heru and Jesus the Christ. Heru, circa 3200 BCE. Heru had two mothers, Aset, the virgin who conceived him, and Nephthys, who nursed him. He was brought forth singly as one of five brothers. Jesus, circa 1 A.C.E. Jesus had two mothers, Mary the virgin who conceived him, and Mary the wife of Cleophas, who brought him forth as one of her five children. Heru was with his mother, mother, the virgin, until 12 years old when he was transformed into the beloved Son of God as the only begotten of the Father in heaven. Jesus remained with his mother, the virgin, up to the age of 12 years when he left her to be about his father's business. From 12 to 30 years of age, there is no record in the life of Heru. From 12 to 30 years of age, there is no record in the life of Jesus. Heru, at 30 years of age, became adult in his baptism by Anup. Jesus, at 30 years of age, was made a man in his baptism by John the Baptist. Heru, in his baptism, made his transformation into the beloved son and only begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit, represented by a bird. Jesus, in his baptism, is hailed from heaven as the beloved son and the only begotten of the Father God, the Holy Spirit, represented by a dove. 
Jocelyn Rise, author of Shaken Creeds, The Virgin Birth Doctrine, has thoroughly researched the history of virgin birth stories and discussed their African origins. Heru was said to be the parthenogenesis child of the virgin mother Aset. In the catacombs of Rome, black statues of this Egyptian divine mother and infant still survive from the early Christian worship of the virgin and child to which they were converted. In these, the Virgin Mary is represented as a black negress, negress and often with the face veiled in the true Aset fashion, statues of the goddess Aset with the child Heru in her arms were common in Egypt and were, and were exported to all neighboring and to many remote countries where they are still to be found with new names attached to them. Christian in Europe, Buddhist in Turkestan, Taoist in China and Japan. Japan. As an adult, Heru became Heru becomes a symbol for good overcoming evil after he avenges the death of his father by slaying his wicked uncle Set. Cosmologically, Set, Satan, represents the setting sun, sunset, which brings on darkness evil, fear, and ignorance. Set also represents the destructive forces of nature. Heru personifies the forces of life, and his symbol, the rising sun, banishes the night and overpowers the forces of evil. In the final analysis, Heru, Heru becomes in life what his father Asar is in death, prototypes for the living and the dead respectively. As other cultures infused elements of Nile Valley symbolism, philosophy, and religion into their society, names were changed and symbols were modified, but not all of the original African components were lost. One has only to develop a finely tuned eye to rediscover the remnants of Nile Valley civilization, which can be found in the symbolism and religions of today. The Architectural Masterpieces of Kemet architecture is one of the most powerful expressions of human creativity incorporated within it are elements relating to art the physical sciences psychology and religion architectural structures serve numerous functions they provide shelter and serve as gathering places where people work play pray and are entertained thousands of years after the architects are dead and forgotten the structures they created live on and tell the story of their entire civilization. The philosophy of a nation is often reflected in its architecture. Nowhere is this statement more accurate than with respect to ancient Kemet. Before the Metunetra hieroglyphics were deciphered, and hundreds of years before the complexities of the science, religion, and philosophy of Kemet were known, her ancient temples pyramids and tombs commanded the respect and admiration of millions of awestruck visitors. Numerous questions have been asked as to why and how these monuments were built. Many of these questions remain unanswered to this very day. Not only does the architecture of Kemet reflect the values and philosophies of its people, it also has incorporated within its physical structure aspects of ancient knowledge which can easily be interpreted, and other elements which defy analysis.
the architecture of Kemet is exoteric and its powerful images overwhelm the senses. The same architecture transmits a subliminal message into the consciousness of any individual who is spiritually and mentally prepared to receive it. Upon examining the architecture of Kemet, it becomes obvious that tremendous energy was expended during the planning, design, and construction of these ancient structures. Buildings were not arbitrarily located on just any site, and they could not have been built without teams of skilled craftsmen and professionals. The notion that many of these structures were built by slave labor is not only unfounded but totally unrealistic. The same organizational skills necessary to build the Sears Tower in Chicago or the World Trade Center in New York City were also required to build the ancient monuments in the Nile Valley. In archaeology, whenever a temple or ancient monument is aligned in a specific rising or setting position of the sun, moon, or other heavenly body, that site is usually referred to as an observatory or a solar or lunar structure. From this perspective, practically every pyramid and temple in the Nile Valley served some astronomic purpose. These ancient buildings were designed not only to accommodate the physical needs of the people, they were also astronomically oriented to facilitate their spiritual needs as well. Temples were designed to create a sense of grandeur and to inspire greater faith within the priests and the general population. The harmonic proportion of the structure, its orientation to celestial bodies, and the location of the sacred altar, holy of holies, were all part of the design to create an environment where the spirit of a specific nature would dwell. Every component within a temple, the soaring height of the columns, the number of columns, the clerestory windows, the positioning of the walls, the paintings and carvings on the walls and columns all reflected an intense desire to establish a sacred place for a dialogue between the human form and its spiritual essence. The use of columns in temple construction was first recorded in the Nile Valley, where it was not uncommon to find them carved to resemble palm trees, papyrus reeds, or lotus blossoms. These three plants represented man's physical, mental, and spiritual relationship with the Creator. The fruit of the palm tree provided nourishment and its leave, leaves and trunk were used to create shelter. The stem of the papyrus plant was used to make paper, thus allowing man to record his thoughts and deeds for posterity. The lotus flower symbolizes the mind and its potential for receiving knowledge and spiritual enlightenment. Every building tells a story in stone and says something about the culture that created it. How historians interpret an ancient architectural monument is determined by their willingness to dismiss their prejudices and by their ability to see the edifice through the eyes of the people who created it. The architecture of Kemet requires such an analysis. The Step Pyramid of Saqqara Ancient Kemet is a land of many firsts, and chief among them is the distinction of being the home of the world's first skyscraper. 
The first stone building ever constructed still stands majestically within the vast complex of temples at Saqqara. It is called the Step Pyramid. There is a total of 15 royal pyramids at Saqqara. Most are in varying stages of disrepair, but they were all developed from the same prototype. The Step Pyramid was built around 2630 BCE for a king of the 3rd dynasty named Zosher. His pyramid rises to a height of 197 feet in a series of six box-like steps called mastabas, an Arabic word which means mud benches. The early mastabas were small rectangular tombs in which the bodies of nobles were buried during the early dynastic period in Kemet. The step pyramid of Zoja represents a profound shift in the construction of the traditional tomb. In this instance, Six mastabas were built, one on top of the other. Each of the five mastabas was smaller than the one beneath it. This created a tiered monument that symbolically represented a stairway to heaven. The completed structure was encased in polished limestone, thus the first pyramid was born. The step pyramid is but one of a number of structures comprising the largest stone complex ever built under the rulership of one leader. The uniquely stylized architecture of the enclosure wall and the adjoining colonnade gives the impression that you are viewing a contemporary structure, not one that was built more than 4,500 years ago. The architectural designs employed at this site set the architectural standard in Kemet for the next 3,000 years. The enclosure wall at Saqqara, at the Saqqara complex was originally nearly 1,800 feet long and 900 feet wide. This wall rose to a height of over 30 feet and enclosed more than a square mile of land. Upon entering the pyramid complex of Zosier, one must walk through a colonnade consisting of 40 columns believed to represent the 40 prov provinces or states of early Kemet. The design of these columns is quite reminiscent of the architectural style that would be attributed to the Greeks more than 2,000 years later. The architect responsible for designing the Step Pyramid and its surrounding compound was referred to by Manetho in 285 BCE as the inventor of the art of building with hewn stone. This architect's name was Imhotep, and he is described as the world's first multi-genius. Imhotep's brilliance superseded his architectural ability, for he was also revered as an astronomer, philosopher, poet, and physician. He was recorded in history as the world's first physician, a title that was later bestowed upon a Greek named Hippocrates, who was born some 2,200 years later. During his lifetime, Imhotep was given many titles, among them Chancellor of the King of Lower Kemet, the first after the king of Upper Kemet, high priest of Heliopolis, and administrator of the great palace, just to name a few. He was deified 2,000 years after his death by the residents of Kemet and was later referred to as Asclepius, the god of medicine by the Greeks. As a philosopher, Imhotep is credited with having written many poems and proverbs, the most famous of which is, eat Drink and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. Very rarely is a noble man more popular than the king he serves, but in the case of Imhotep, 
He was worshipped in early Christianity as the Prince of Peace and described as the first Christ, a title meaning the Anointed One. The Great Pyramid of Giza, 10 miles west of Cairo, at the geographical center of the Earth's landmass, is a man-made limestone plateau which is one mile square and rises 130 feet above the Nile Delta. This area, which today is called Giza, is unmistakably the most important archaeological site on the planet. It is at the Giza Plateau that we find the ancient remains of a vast industrial complex comprising 10 pyramidal, pyramidal, pyramidal structures, the most famous of which is the, Giza, is the Great Pyramid. This Great Pyramid is the largest, oldest, and only remaining of the seven wonders of the world. When it was originally constructed, the Great Pyramid rose to a height of 481 feet in 201 stair-step tiers. Unfortunately, the last 12 courses of stone and the capstone were removed at some undisclosed point in time. All that remains today is a 20 by 20 foot platform at its apex and a wood frame which indicated its original height. Since its construction, the Great Pyramid has withstood two ruinous assaults at the hands of Arabs, who had little or no regard for its historic significance. These attacks were an obvious indication that this structure represented a culture that was foreign to the Arabs, and in their eyes was therefore unworthy of their respect. The first major assault on the Great Pyramid occurred in 820 ACE when a Persian caliph by the name of Abdullah al-Mamun burrowed into its interior in an attempt to find the great treasures rumored to have been stored inside its secret chambers. After tunneling more than a hundred feet through the solid core of the pyramid, al-Mamun's men finally broke through into a narrow, narrow passageway. The men scurried about in the various rooms and corridors of the pyramid. They were unable to find any treasure, and they abandoned their search in disgust. As a result of al-Mamun's forced entry into the pyramid, its interior was made accessible to outsiders for the first time in more than 1,000 years. The second major attack against the pyramid occurred in 1356 A.C.E., when its polished limestone exterior was removed and used to rebuild the city of Cairo after a devastating earthquake. Originally, the entire outer surface of the pyramid was covered with polished white limestone, giving the appearance of one smooth and continuous surface reflecting the light of the sun and the moon. Over the course of several decades, the entire 22 acres of 100-inch thick limestone casing was removed and used in the construction of the mosques of El Hassan El Rifai and the fortress of Kalat El Gabel in Cairo. The stripping of the limestone covering left the pyramid's outer core of masonry exposed. These same blocks now provide enthusiastic tourists early access to climb to the pyramid's apex. The Great Pyramid has stirred the imagination of man for countless years. It is mentioned in no less than 10,000 documents and has been the subject 
of many commentaries and theories as to its construction and purpose. There are many who believe the Great Pyramid was built as a tomb for King Khufu, while others maintain it was used as a water purifier. There are those who say it was built by beings from Atlantis or by aliens from outer space. The truth is, there are neither paintings nor carvings in the pyramid to attest to its purpose, nor has any history of its construction survived the passage of time. One of the greatest misconceptions regarding the Great Pyramid is that it was constructed by Jews during their enslavement in Kemet. Examination of a timeline will show the error of this belief. Abraham, who was the founder of Judaism and the ancestor of both the Arabs and the Jews, was said to have been born around 1675 BCE, which was at least 900 years after the Great Pyramid is believed to have been constructed. It is not the intent of this work to discuss the controversy and confusion surrounding the building of this structure or its intended use. The purpose here is to present empirical data and examine its logical implications. One must be extremely careful when examining the Great Pyramid and other aspects of ancient Kemet, for they have been misinterpreted by armchair Egyptologists who have never been to Egypt, and others who have visited Egypt brought with them their prejudices and a profound disdain for the history of Africa and its people. As researcher and author John Anthony West noted in his book, Serpent in the Sky, Egyptian knowledge is a whole. No part of it is meant to be studied, divorced from the rest. Since there is no other way for us to study it except piecemeal, we must always bear in mind that any conclusions we come to must be related to the whole from which they have been extracted. Egyptian knowledge is always implicit, never explicit. Egypt didn't talk about its knowledge, but rather incorporated it into its art and architecture, allowing it to exercise its effect emotionally. Egypt talked to the mind of the heart. Mr. West's statements regarding Kemet can just as easily be applied to most investigations of traditional African history and culture. It is very difficult for anyone to know that which they do not understand. And when understanding is further hindered by arrogance and prejudice, true knowledge often gives way to distorted perceptions of reality, which is oftentimes accepted as legitimate scholarship. Many Egyptologists are of the opinion that the Great Pyramid was built by pagan primitives to house the body of a deceased king. They believe its measurements were made by crude instruments and that a slave labor force of thousands of men was used to quarry, transport, and position the approximately two and one-half million stones that make up this great structure. These beliefs persist despite the lack of evidence to fully support them. The Great Pyramid may not be the largest stone structure ever, ever created, but it is still, many thousands of years after its construction, the most perfectly aligned building to true north. The alignment 
is only one twelfth of a degree off true north. This misalignment has been attributed to the shifting of the Earth's crust since the pyramid's construction and not an error on the part of those who constructed it. The Paris Observatory is the most perfectly aligned structure built in modern times, and it is aligned six minutes off true north. How is it possible that quote-unquote slaves or primitive workers accomplished a feat thousands of years ago which quote-unquote skilled technicians would have difficulty duplicating today? This question has not been answered, so it is ignored. The pyramid's precise alignment to true north is a confirmation that its builders possessed a working knowledge of geography, which is essential to the development of any nation. From the earliest of times, the inhabitants of the Nile Valley had to continuously survey and reestablish the agricultural boundaries that were washed away with the annual flooding of the Nile. The designation of national and domestic boundaries construction of temples and the undertakings of trade and commerce all require a working knowledge of geography and geodesy. Today, the basis of geography is the system of latitude and longitude used to measure the size of our planet and to chart its surface with supreme accuracy. Most people think of this as an invention of the modern world because it requires a working knowledge of a higher form of mathematics such as spherical trigonometry. However, we find this exact knowledge incorporated into the interior and exterior measurements of the Great Pyramid. The pyramid's perimeter, the sum of its base lengths, is 3,023 feet, which is precisely equal to one half minute of a degree of latitude at the equator, or one of the polar circumference of the Earth. A measurement of the pyramid's perimeter, including the outermost sockets upon which it rests, which incidentally are recessed eight inches below the surface, yields a length of 3,043.8 feet, which is precisely equal to one half minute of a degree of longitude at the equator, or one forty-three thousand two hundredths of the equatorial circumference of the Earth. The entire pyramid rests on a platform which is more than 755 feet in length and leveled to within four-fifths of an inch. The height of the pyramid plus the height of its base platform, 482.7571 feet, is equal to 143,200 of the polar radius of the Earth or the distance from the center of the Earth to the North Pole. It should be noted that the repetition of the formula 143,200 in the three measurements is intentional and relates to the size and shape of the earth. There are 360 degrees in a circle, 60 minutes in a degree, and two half minutes in one minute. Simply put, 360 times 60 times 2 equals 43,200. These three basic measurements of the pyramid 
all on the same scale represent the three essential geodetic values of our planet with a precision with a precision matched only with contemporary satellite or space shuttle surveys. These measurements, in addition to other geographic facts about the Great Pyramid, its placement at the center of the Earth's landmass, the position at the apex of the Nile Delta, and its orientation to the cardinal points of the compass all support the idea that whoever built the Great Pyramid knew the precise circumference of the planet and was aware of the flattening at the poles and equatorial bridge. This knowledge was not rediscovered until the 18th century ACE. The fact that the Great Pyramid was engineered with accuracies measured to the hundredths of an inch is a testimonial to its builders having possessed an advanced knowledge of mathematics. To cite another example, the pyramid's height relates to its perimeter as the radius of a circle does to its circumference. Dividing the perimeter of the pyramid's base by twice its height yields 3.1428, which is a working approximation of pi often used by contemporary engineers in construction design. The area of a face of the Great Pyramid is also the same as the square of its vertical height. The square of the vertical height is also the same as one-half the pyramid's base width times its slant height. This fact indicates that the pyramid's design is in accordance with pi 1.618, also called the golden number. Math is an integral part of astronomy, the science of, of observing the stars and planets. Astronomy is vital for the calculation of the length of the year and the precise moment of the solstices and equinoxes, which leads to the creation of a calendrical system. Calen calendrical system. It is commonly accepted. It is a commonly accepted fact that the Egyptians were responsible for the development of a 365 and one fourth day year, a 24 hour day, and the second as a unit of measure for the hour. Clues as to how this information was obtained can be found in the interior passages of the Great Pyramid, which were used as astronomical observatories for watching and clocking the heavens. One of the most precisely constructed passages in the pyramid is the descending passage. The passage points to the northern skies at an angle of 26 degrees, 17 minutes, which when subtracted from the pyramid's latitudinal angle of nearly 30 degrees, provides a view within three degrees, 43 minutes of the celestial pole, a perfect angle for watching the transit of circumpolar stars across the entrance opening. Another passage, the ascending passage, angles are from descending passage at 26 degrees, 17 minutes, and would be the precise angle for light reflection. If the light from a transiting star shone on a pool of water or mirror at the juncture point of the descending passage, the light would be reflected up the ascending passage and observed to the grand in the grand gallery. Today, the US Naval Observatory in Washington DC calculates the length of the year by timing the light of a transiting star across a limited field of field of vision 
as it is reflected from a pool of mercury. Located deep inside the confines of the pyramid is a room referred to as the King's Chamber. It was given this name for purely chauvinistic reasons because it is the largest of the two rooms in the pyramid. It had to have been built for the king and the smaller one was obviously built for the queen. The queen's chamber is made of limestone and the king's chamber is made of granite, which is believed to have been quarried in Aswan some 600 miles to the south. The dimension, the dimensions of the king's chamber 34 feet 4 inches in length times 17 feet 2 inches in width times 19 feet 1 inch in height are most significant because they express two ratios of Pythagorean triangles a squared plus b squared equals c squared and 3 3 colon 5 colon 5 the pyramid builders were obviously familiar with these sacred triangles thousands of years before Pythagoras was supposed to have introduced them. These same basic geometric principles were referred to by Plato as the building blocks of the cosmos. Elmer D. Robinson, a world-renowned mathematician at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, studied the Great Pyramid in detail and made these remarks. The analysis and mathematical modeling of the Great Pyramid indicates that the ancient Egyptians had a knowledge of geometry and, and mathematics, which few historians and archaeologists will give them credit for. The evidence is strong that they knew of and used quadratic equations and the quadratic formula. They most certainly had a system of logarithms used combinations of integers with any rational number and used an infinite geometrical progression having many unique properties. This is a level of mathematical knowledge equaled only within the past 200 years. Despite the references to the king's chamber as the site where the body of Khufu was buried, no body has ever been found there. As a matter of fact, evidence indicates that no original burial has ever been found in any of the approximately 72 pyramids in Egypt. The Great Pyramid, in stark contrast to the hundreds of tombs which have been unearthed in Egypt, contains no paintings, carvings, or images traditionally associated with the burial of royalty. The association of this pyramid with Khufu is also something of a mystery. The only surviving image of the great pharaoh Khufu is a small ivory statuette four inches in height. This figurine was found not in Giza, but in a toilet 300 miles to the south of Giza in the temple at Abydos. Further investigations of the king's chamber continue to shed some light as to some of its possible uses. Inside the chamber, there are two shafts which were cut through 200 feet of solid masonry to the outer surface of the pyramid. These shafts, which face in a northerly and southerly direction, have long been regarded as air shafts that ventilated the king's chamber. New evidence has been presented which shows the so-called air shafts are inclined within one degree of accuracy to the northern celestial pole and to the three stars of Orion's belt to the south. It has been suggested that these openings were meant as symbolic guideways for the soul, 
guiding it either towards the circumpolars in the northern sky or to the constellation of Orion in the southern sky. Lucy Lamy, author of Egyptian Mysteries, offers additional insight on this interesting theory. Egypt, it was said, is the is in the image of heaven. The emphasis placed on north and south and leads us to investigate the regions of the sky, of which earth is only a reflection. It is actually a matter of two ways being offered to each individual, that of final liberation and eternal life, the north, or that of reincarnation in a mortal body and the commencement of a new experience, the south. The main star viewed through through the northern shaft is called Alpha Draconis. Around it turn the circumpolars, often called the indestructibles, because they never disappeared below the horizon. It was for this reason that these stars symbolized immortality. A soul which had chosen this path in life was said to ascend into the imperishable dominion of the northern heavens. The southern shaft was oriented to the 36 stars constellations also referred to as deacons whose consecutive helical risings occurred approximately every 10 days hence the name deacon which is derived from the latin prefix dec meaning 10 dec meaning 10 each so is a deacon a decan each Deacon rose above the horizon after a period of 70 days of invisibility. The 70-day mummification process corresponds to this phenomenon. Among the stars within this southern hemisphere are Osiris, Orion, the symbol of resurrection, and Isis, Sothis, Sirius, which was associated with the annual regeneration of the Nile. The most impressive aspect of the Great Pyramid is its sheer size and volume. It is composed of approximately two and one-half million stones, which weigh an average of two and one-half tons each. There are several located above the King's Chamber that weigh as much as 70 tons, the equivalent of a railroad locomotive. Its base covers an area of 13.11 square acres or seven city blocks. It is perfectly level to within one-half inch. There is more stone in the Great Pyramid than in all the cathedral than in all there is more stone in the Great Pyramid than in all the cathedrals, churches, and chapels built in England since the time of Christ. In more contemporary terms, the Great Pyramid was built to a height equaling a forty five story building and with enough stone to build thirty Empire State buildings. So vast is this structure that if all of its stones were cut into one-foot blocks and laid end-to-end, they would stretch two-thirds of the distance around the earth at the equator. The cement used to bind these stones in place is one-fiftieth of an inch, the thickness of two sheets of paper, and it is nearly invisible when compared to the one-half inch of mortar used in traditional brick construction. If you were given a modern construction engineer If you were to give a modern construction engineer the task of building a structure 85 million cubic feet in volume composed of over two and one half million blocks of limestone and granite, 
weighing from 2 to 70 tons apiece with a joint tolerance of no more than 1 50th of an inch and an orientation of true north, the engineer would probably tell you that what you are asking for is impossible to build by any means known today. There is very little creditable data concerning the construction of the Great Pyramid. The one source commonly referred, commonly referenced is Herodotus, who visited Kemet in 443 BCE and reported that 100,000 men built the Great Pyramid in a period of 20 years, during the three-month period of the annual flood season. This account seems to be highly improbable considering the fact that the data suggested translate into, translates into only 1,800 working days at 12 hours per day, which equals a total of 21,600 man-hours. If this sum is divided into the 2,300,000 blocks, it means that the builders had to position about 1,200 blocks a day, or 100 blocks an hour, or almost a block every minute. We must remember that the father of history visited the pyramids about 2,000 years after they were constructed, and many primary sources were not available to him. As recently as 1978, the Nippon Corporation of Japan attempted to construct a miniature pyramid at Giza utilizing the methods attributed to the original builders. The plan was to quarry the stones using crude implements, transport them by rafts down the Nile, drag them from the river's edge, and then lift them into place with simple levers. However, once construction began, the workmen were confronted with innumerable problems. The tools used to acquire the stones proved to be useless and were replaced by modern jackhammers. The rafts used to transport the stones sank in the Nile and steamboats were employed. Finally, trucks were used to transport the stones to the worksite after the use of manual labor proved to be fruitless. Once at the worksite, the laborers proved to be unsuccessful at lifting and positioning the stones. Power cranes and helicopters were called in to finish the job. Finally, the workers damaged more stones than they used, and those used in the construction of the pyramid were so poorly aligned that it became obvious to the engineers of the Nippon Corporation. They had bitten off more than they could chew. Eventually, the Egyptian government intervened and ordered the dismantling of the pyramid because of the unauthorized use of heavy-duty construction equipment. They failed. This failed attempt to construct a pyramid once again raised the question as to how the Great Pyramid was built. Not only were the Japanese unable to duplicate the building of this structure using the ancient, theorized means of construction, they were not able to build it using the technologically advanced equipment of today. Throughout the ages, numerous individuals have sought to unravel the mysteries of the Great Pyramid's construction. Who built it? When was it built? And how was it constructed? Although the knowledge which produced the Great Pyramid has been shrouded in secrecy for more than 5,000 years, new discoveries are being made which may soon reveal the purpose and method of construction of this seventh wonder of the world, the most ancient of mysteries. When those questions are answered, do not be surprised if all the proponents of the tomb theories are looked upon in the same light as those who once thought the world was flat and that the earth was the center of the universe.
Had M. Aket, the Great Sphinx. Kemet has long been regarded as a land of many mysteries, but one of the most enigmatic structures which was which has baffled mankind throughout the ages is the statue called the Sphinx, carved in situ out of one single mass of stone which was formerly a part of the physical geography of the Giza Plateau. The Sphinx stares majestically towards the eastern horizon. The Sphinx is the largest and oldest monument ever sculpted from a single rock. It has the head of a person and the body of a reclined lion. As late as the 18th dynasty, circa 1550 BCE, this monument was called Her M. Aket, Heru of the Horizon. This name was a direct reference to Heru, the sun nature, child of Asar and Aset, and the Aket, which means places where the sun rises and sets. Her M. Aket faces the rising sun and its strategic positioning at the foot of the Great Pyramid provides a clue to its symbolic meaning. This great statue is 240 feet long and 66 feet high. It has a shoulder span of 38 feet, a head that is almost 14 feet wide, and a seven-foot smile. Head and maquette represents a perfect blend of art and architecture, mystery and magnificence. It aesthetically integrates the essence of man and animal in such a way that it expresses the divine relationship between the two. This is not your typical anthropomorphic statue. Symbolically, the body of the beast represents the animal nature which exists in man, and the lion exemplifies the royalty and power of the divine spirit that exists in its lower physical form. The head of a man symbolizes the intelligence of the mind which must be cultivated in order to elevate the consciousness into a higher spiritual state so that it may become divine. Metaphorically speaking, it is the suppression of the lower animal nature and the refinement of the thought process that leads to the spiritual evolution of man. Spiritually speaking, it is only by conquering the beast within that one is capable of truly knowing God. Knowledge comes from enlightenment, light, good, God, which vanquishes the darkness, ignorance, evil, devil. Heru represents the conquest of good over evil, Set, Satan, and Heru Imaket exemplifies the eternal conquest of good over evil because he faces the eastern horizon and is physically enlightened by the sun as it rises each morning. The Sphinx has been called the soul of Egypt by Zahi Hawass, the director of the Egyptian Antiquity Organization, but in order to understand the depth of its soul, one must go back to its comedic roots. A simple analysis of the names that foreigners have used to describe this statue helps to explain how they misinterpreted its spiritual meaning. In Arabic, the Sphinx is called Abu Hol, which means father of terror. This concept was derived from the Greek word Sphinx, which means the strangler. In Greek mythology, the Sphinx was a winged monster with a lion's body and the head and breasts of a woman. This beast was perched upon a rock near Thebes in Greece, not Kemet, and asked a riddle of every passerby. All those who were unable to answer the riddle correctly were strangled by the Sphinx. This myth is derived from the tragedy of Oedipus Rex, 
which was written by the Greek playwright Sophocles. The riddle asked by the Sphinx was, what has one voice and goes on four feet, on two feet, and on three? But the more feet it goes on, the weaker it be. In the myth, Oedipus is Oedipus. Oedipus is traveling to Thebes when he is confronted by the Sphinx who asks him the riddle. Oedipus responded, Man who crawls on all fours as a baby, then walks on two legs as an adult, and walks with a cane in old age. Having solved the riddle, the Sphinx immediately committed suicide by jumping off a cliff, and Oedipus continued his journey to Thebes, where he was later proclaimed king for having outsmarted the great beast. This myth vividly illustrates how the Greeks borrowed, plagiarized, and distorted elements of comedic art, symbolism, and philosophy. Before the statue of Head and Maquette, there were no images of human-headed lions in the world. Since its creation in Kemet, sphinxes have been found among the remains of ancient civilizations such as Assyria, Phoenicia, and those of Asia Minor. As was the case with the other nations, sphinxes began to surface in Greece only after contact was made with the people of Kemet. Interestingly, when the Greeks created a statue similar in design to Hera Maquette, they defiled it by making it evil and portraying it as female because of their low regard for women. Another interesting element in the concept of the stolen legacy of ancient Kemet is the close proximity of the monstrous sphinx to the Greek city of Thebes. Thebes was an ancient city in Boeotia, a region in central Greece which was founded by the Phoenician king named Cadmus around 500 BCE. 1500 years earlier, the capital of Kemet was located in 1500 years earlier. The capital of Kemet was located in a city called Waset, which was regarded as the greatest city in the richest and most powerful nation of the ancient world. The Greeks later na- renamed this city Thebes. The Greeks derived the name Thebes from the African word apet or epet, which was the original name for the temple of Karnak in Waset. The Greeks then added a feminine prefix to apet, which became Taped, from which they derived Thebai, which later became Thebes. Within Waset, there existed two magnificent temples, the Shemayit Ipet, Luxor Temple, and Ipet Isut, Karnak Temple. The two temples were connected by an avenue of 2,000 sphinxes spanning a distance of two miles. Homer, the Greek poet, praised the glory of this great city in the Iliad, circa 750 BCE, and referred to it as the hundred-gated city. Historical data shows that the Greeks visited Waset and renamed this great city Thebes. They later built a city in Greece which they named Thebes and associated a sphinx with it. The likelihood that the Greeks developed these associations independently of any direct contact with Kemet is totally preposterous. The Temple of Her Emaket, a short distance East of the paws of Hedemachet stands an ancient temple which was one of the last major monuments to be discovered at Giza. Although excavation of the site was not begun until the 1920s, it wasn't until 40 years later that the temple was studied in detail and the results of the study were revealed to the world. Herbert Rickey, a Swiss archaeologist, spent three years 
researching the structure and concluded that it was the oldest solar temple ever built in Kemet. An article published in the April 1986 issue of Smithsonian Magazine reviewed Mr. Rickey's findings. He identified niche sanctuaries on its east and west sides dedicated to the rising and setting sun, a colonnaded court with 24 massive pillars marking the 24 hours of the day, and 10 or 12 statues of the pharaoh, Khafre. Riquet further concluded that the Sphinx was not placed to guard the Giza necropolis as some Egyptologists had surmised, but instead was a symbol of the sun god himself peering over the colonnade into the sanctuaries below. This temple is perfectly oriented to the astronomical midpoint of the year, the vernal and autumnal equinoxes. It is during the spring and fall equinoxes that the earth experiences 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. This temple is so precisely aligned to the movements of the sun that anyone standing in the eastern sanctuary at the equinox will see the sun, trace the outline of the head of Heremaket, while illuminating the sanctuary at its, as it sets behind the shoulder of this great statue. The same scene can be witnessed in the sanctuary of another temple as the sun sets during the winter solstice. The Smithsonian article describes also describes other fascinating discoveries made by Riquet. Two other astonishing alignments were revealed as the study went on, both involving the Egyptian hieroglyph Aket, which means places where the sun rises and sets. The Aket is rendered as a sun between two mountains, viewed from the Sphinx at the time of the summer solstice when the sun is at its greatest distance north of the celestial equator. It sets directly between the pyramids of Khufu and Khafre, thus riding across the horizon in Aket on the scale of acres. This is a clear reference to Heru, the god and the Aket sign, because anyone approaching from ancient Memphis would have seen the head of the Sphinx silhouetted between the two pyramids. Head and Maquette is separated from the Pyramid of Khafre by a distance of more than 1,500 feet, and the solar temple, which is located directly in front of Head and Maquette, was built 70 feet below it. Yet, despite these vast Distances, the architects, engineers, and designers of the human-headed statue, the solar temple, and the second pyramid were able to orient all three structures to the solstices and equinoxes with a skill that is unimaginable by today's standards. To many, the buildings at Giza are much more than monuments to the dead. These ancient edifices are the signatures of godlike men written in stone across the sky and they serve as a physical reminder of what man once was and the level of godliness he must aspire to attain.